Hello and welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have James McMicking, Vice President of Strategy, Zero Avia. On today's episode, James and I discuss the future of zero emissions aviation. And you won't believe this, it's only a few years away, not 10 years away. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast, James. Hi, good to be here. It's wonderful to have you here because what Zero Avia is working on is the future. What Zero Avia is working on will have a profound positive effect on society as we move towards a decarbonized world. And staying on that theme, James, how will zero emissions aviation be achieved? Sure. So, I mean, first of all, when we say zero emissions, what we mean is uh, zero climate impact. And that's really important to distinguish here. So to get there, we've got to stop fundamentally burning things, okay? Because when we burn things, then we create emissions of one variety or another. But it's going to take time. So the industry is obviously looking at uh, a whole bunch of different solutions in order to transition to a a zero emissions future. We think that uh, hydrogen is going to be the fuel that gets us there, ultimately. And there are two things you can do with hydrogen. You can uh, either combust it through a turbine, or you can run it through a hydrogen electric uh, system, which is what we're developing. So this is a fuel cell, turns that hydrogen into electricity to drive an electric motor. The difference between the two is one case you're burning the hydrogen, so you're creating nitrous oxides, but also a lot of high velocity, high temperature water vapor. With hydrogen fuel cells, we don't burn it, so there's no nitrous oxides and the water vapor leaves the aircraft at a much lower temperature uh, and lower velocity, uh, which means we can do things to potentially manage and mitigate uh, contrail formation from using hydrogen as a fuel. So that's the direction we think things are going in, and that's how we get to a zero emission, genuine zero emission uh, aviation industry. How does hydrogen fuel cells, the role that it plays as it relates to weight, does it make the plane heavier than if you're using traditional jet fuel? Is it lighter? How How does that work? Yeah, so it's all very different uh, to to the sort of aircraft we understand today. Um, So uh, jet engines are very power dense uh, devices, of course. And with the technology today, we don't have that same level of power density from the fuel cell. But the, the idea is to develop the technology so we get closer and closer to that mark. The the trade with uh, the system then is you end up with a a heavier propulsion uh, system, uh, generally speaking, Um, but the fuel is a lot lighter. So hydrogen, you know, significantly lighter than uh, kerosene for the amount of energy uh, that you can extract from it. So that's uh, that's where you get something back, if you like, uh, at the airframe level. So overall, we, we hope to be able to, we aim to, to be able to uh, maintain an aircraft that can carry the right sort of payload and fly the right sort of range with this type of powertrain in the relatively near future. And then it's all about increasing that power density uh, using and uh, developing technologies uh, and scaling those technologies up to, to, to then operate with hydrogen. What type of range are you looking at when you, when you first roll out your product? Yeah, so the very first product is going to be a commuter type aircraft. Uh, so this is in the 9 to 19 seat category. And this will run on gaseous hydrogen and operate somewhere between 250 and 300 nautical miles. Of, uh, of useful uh, mission range. And when we eventually introduce liquid hydrogen into the, the sector, we'll be able to extend the range of those aircraft as well uh, beyond that. So that's through retrofitting of aircraft, okay? So that's taking an existing a- airframe out of the fleet, removing its turbines, and then putting a hydroelectric system in. If you go with a clean sheet aircraft in that sector, 
then you can fly a lot further because, of course, you can design the plane to use the powertrain more effectively. And you know, we've announced fairly recently partnerships with Auto Aviation, for example, that has a novel type of airframe that is very efficient and can package this type of powertrain more effectively than the retrofit. But the retrofit is a very viable solution. It's a way of decarbonizing quickly, sooner, the sector. And, and then what we'll do is we'll you know, increase the power ranges at which the technology can work. The, the program we're also undertaking at the moment is uh, for regional turboprops. <laughs> so this is the sort of 40 to 90 seat category. And, uh, and here we'll use liquid hydrogen and we'll want these aircraft to fly uh, up to a 1,000 nautical miles uh, eventually uh, in retrofit form. So these are distances that cover you know, more or less all of the missions that these types of planes are flying today. When you're looking at the 250 to 300 nautical miles, you're, you're based in London. You, you have Heathrow Airport. Is that, say, from Heathrow to Madrid? Or can you, what, can you give like an example of what that distance might be so a listener can relate to it? Yeah, so the, the commuter aircraft don't tend to fly that far anyway, right? Because they're, they're relatively slow. You know, they're small planes. You use them to connect places that are not well connected. So in the UK, as an example, it would be something like um, flying from London to to say Scotland, right, to, to Glasgow or Edinburgh, or, or you could uh, fly across the country, maybe from Birmingham to Norwich, and connect regions that are actually not that well served with ground infrastructure and cut journey times uh, by to, to maybe a third of what they would otherwise be, and probably do it at significantly lower cost. So you know, actually, the technology has an interesting role in that space, in those small aircraft. Uh, and, and that's where we end up talking about things like regional air mobility and you know, new, new forms of, uh, of using a- aviation to help connect regions. Uh, if you want to fly uh, to the Met, then you're going to need to wait for our uh, regional turboprop uh, powertrain uh, technology. So when we're pushing 1,000 nautical miles, that's the sort of plane you want to go on holiday from uh, from uh, the UK uh, down to the south of France uh, or Italy. Uh, Regional mobility aircraft is going to have a positive economic impact. So if you if you go into a part of Scotland or you go into Wales, you have a positive economic impact from, from the tourism dollars that those individuals are spending there, and you're going to get them there in a very clean, efficient way, which raises the question I've thought a lot about is the infrastructure there. Do you have to put hydrogen fueling infrastructure at these regional airports? Or what does that look like as you get prepared to scale up your service? Yeah, absolutely. So in a lot of cases, you don't need to put the infrastructure everywhere because the aircraft can tanker the fuel from a hub location to the airport you want to travel to and back again. Uh, So many of these flights are less than 100 nautical miles, right? Over either a sort of mountainous region or over a short stretch of water to connect to an island. So there's plenty of uh, fuel on board to do that journey out and back again. So that's that's useful. You know, that helps uh, ease the infrastructure problem. Uh, But uh, we we are working on infrastructure solutions alongside our powertrain technology development. We have in our facility in the UK and the Cotswolds our own mobile refueler, uh, but we've also developed a refueling pipeline that uh, I think is the first of its kind, running from land side to air side. And we can manage end to end the production of hydrogen right the way through to refueling the aircraft itself. So we already understand the protocols and how this can be achieved uh, safely, of course. And, and you know that way, we're sort of already solving some of these operational challenges. And we're going to do that infrastructure work uh, you know, with partners to roll it out in different ways. You know, you'll see different 
infrastructure solutions depending on the particular circumstances of the airfield, how much hydrogen it needs, what its proximity to power generation is like. Uh, you may see on-site uh, generation, of course, both with renewable power and electrolysis, but you'll also see off-site centralized generation uh, of green hydrogen and tankering in or piping in even to, uh, at large volumes um, to the airfield. That opens up the wonderful opportunity for microgrid. You can you can generate it completely using renewable energy, which can then help further um, cut down on the carbon. From a refueling, you, you, you look, you're in a commercial air, airport, you look out the window, you see the team, they, they plug it in to, to fuel up the aircraft before you, you go on your journey. How does that compare to fueling up with hydrogen? Is it a different safety procedure? What does that look like? It's going to be a bit different, uh, absolutely. So, you know, hydrogen as a substance has different safety considerations to take into account, which means, you know, potentially different uh, safety distances need to be observed to the airframe. You've got different uh, sort of human factors considerations as well and how we need to protect people that might be operating with equipment. So things will look a little bit different, but I think to the layperson, you know, you'll see hoses being plugged into the aircraft. Uh, you won't see what goes on goes on inside those hoses, uh, and then they'll be unplugged and you'll board the plane. So there won't be a lot different in that respect. But the equipment and the procedures will be quite different. So there's there is a reasonable amount of work there to do in understanding all of those things and establishing the standards. But all of these challenges can be reasonably overcome, and they've been looked at in in fairly good detail so far by folks looking to develop these technologies in the sector. That's a very interesting point because you got kind of a theme in this podcast is about public trust. So today a consumer or passenger for that matter is very comfortable going on a traditional jet with jet fuel. They're on a hydrogen plane. Will they even notice a difference from an experience on the aircraft? Are they, okay, this could be jet fuel. We don't know. Will they notice any difference? They probably won't notice any difference, to be honest. I mean, what they will notice with our aircraft, particularly the smaller ones, which are the, the propeller aircraft, right, is, is less noise. So uh, you'll hear the prop noise, but you won't hear the turbine noise. So the, the, the propeller will start spinning very quietly uh, until it spins right up and you'll, you'll get that. But uh, none of the other stuff that comes with it, uh, probably less vibration uh, as well through the airframe, uh, I would expect. So, the, you know, this is another thing that kind of makes it interesting, right? Back to our regional mobility uh, you know, argument earlier. You've got a zero emission powertrain. It's got no impact on local air quality because there's no nitrous oxides, which is you know, one of the most uh, you know, problematic gases when it comes to health and lower noise. So those things are important factors for local communities. So if we want to start using airfields for, you know, increasing our mobility between different regions, these are the sorts of things that we'll need on aircraft to make it acceptable to use them. So, you know, they will, they will notice these sort of dif differences, hopefully an enhanced passenger experience. And again, you know, those that are, are particularly uh, well-versed in what aircraft look like, uh, you'll notice some other differences as well. Like, you know, engine nacelles are going to be slightly different shape uh, on bigger aircraft. They're going to be shaped differently to, to hold fuel tanks in different places. The wings will be redesigned to you know, improve the aerodynamics, all this sort of stuff. But you'd have to know what you're looking for to uh, see the difference, I suspect. It's neat. There's the, um, there's that wonderful video, well, I think it was a month or two ago at Heathrow, there's these individuals out there and they were plane spotting and the gentleman's calling it like a football game. Oh, this one, he's banking to the left, he's banking to the right because of the, the winds. And it was really impressive. There's this group of individuals that love aircraft and they try and, and spot them. 
So that's on the consumer passenger side. How about on the pilot side? Will the pilots have to go through retraining or what will the difference be from a pilot that's going to fly one of your aircraft? Uh, of course, there will be you know, a different system to manage for the pilot and the, you know, the instrumentation is going to need to give, to give different feedback in the cockpit uh, to the pilot. So there's going to need to be uh, a rating that goes with that system. So the pilot will need to be trained in the system, in the safety procedures that go with it. So this is something that we're working our way through as we fly test uh, the aircraft. And uh, you know, this is one of the reasons why we want to work with operators to understand what they need from us to introduce these aircraft into service. Uh, so you're absolutely right. You know, not just pilots, but uh, you know, the rest of the, the crew, the ground crew, maintenance uh, operatives as well, and technicians uh, are gonna need to be uh, trained in how to service these types of engine uh, as well. Operators that, that, that operate, you're in the UK, so you have British Airways, then here we have a American, we have United, we have Delta. They, these individuals understand large, sophisticated operations. They understand all the maintenance. They understand the, the painting, the regulatory. And I, I want to give you a, a shout out here because you're, UK, you're based in the UK, but in America, you have a 19% market share on paper. You've got to deal with Alaska Airlines and a and a deal with United Airlines, which combinedly gives you 19% market share of the U.S. With Alaska, so the deals with the Alaska Air Group, which is the parent of Alaska Airlines, you're going to develop a hydrogen electric powertrain capable of flying a 76 regional aircraft in excess of 500 nautical miles. Another shout out, Alaska is also an investor, so congratulations on that. So you're working with them as an investor and as a partner. Could you talk about that collaboration? Because it seems like something special is brewing there. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is back to the to the regional turboprop uh, we talked about earlier. So, uh, you know, we want to retrofit aircraft for Alaska uh, with hydrogen electric powertrain. Uh, so they're going to help us with understanding their requirements for the aircraft, because obviously we're making you know, significant changes to the airframe and we want to optimize that system. So, you know, having these customer relationships is really important. They want to take a, a leading stance on decarbonizing their operations, which is fantastic. And, uh, you know, it's good to see these big operators uh, wanting to, to, to be first movers uh, with the technology. And it really helps us as innovators to have access to them. So, you know, that's what that's all about. And obviously coupled with it is, you know, our relationship with the Howland of Canada, for example, uh, on the airframe itself. And, uh, you know, that way we've got uh, the, the technical partners we need to bring that aircraft into service. And, uh, you know, the target is to do that in you know, more or less uh, four years, four years time. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, they'll be set up with uh, zero emission operations uh, shortly after. So that's the, that's what we're doing with Alaska. And it's also some British, I mean, you know, you've mentioned British Airways. They're a, a strategic uh, investor and a partner in the business as well. But, you know, they're obviously looking, and I think this is a, an important message here, they're looking to where the technology is going to go in the future, right? Because they're interested in bigger aircraft. And, and that's absolutely the, the mission of the company. This is a scalable technology that in time, we're going to be able to power larger aircraft uh, that will really help these operators to, to decarbonize. We've all done it. We go across the pond. So you go from JFK to, to, to Heathrow. Is that the thing? Okay, that's the, I believe it's their most, I have to look at their financials, but that's their most profitable 
route do they also want to make that their most decarbonized route i i imagine so i you know i can't i can't speak for british airways but uh, i should think they want to decarbonize everything they're doing but in particularly you know particularly these long-range flights right which uh, use a, a lot of the fuel uh in the industry so you know those things are absolutely in scope for hydrogen uh, propulsion there are no barriers to to really the range in which these aircraft can fly you know at least Hydrogen aircraft can service all routes. Concept work that has been done to look at this in some detail within the UK, for example, uh, by the Aerospace Technology Institute, has shown that you can design a hydrogen-powered aircraft to fly anywhere in the world with one stop. Right, So that is commercially viable for the entire industry's requirements. So, you know, this is why it's exciting. Now, you know, how you use that energy is this debate between turbine and, and hydrogen electric or, or potentially a combination of those two things. So, you know, this is where the technology is going to go. You know, we're going to keep scaling it up uh, to try and power these bigger and bigger aircraft because that's how we that's how we make a real impact on carbon emissions. Qantas operates the world's longest flight. It's, it's, it's just over 20 hours directed. I forget where it starts and goes. I think it might be Dubai to Sydney. Is that the holy grail for where you're trying to say, aha, we've, we've done the longest route with hydrogen in the world? No, I, 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 not for me at least. And, and that, that's not something that we're focused on as a powertrain business specifically because, you know, it's unusual to fly that, that distance, right? And I think if we set out to design aircraft to do that specifically, uh, we're missing an opportunity to do things much more efficiently with the rest of the sector, right? Because you've then got to design your entire aircraft family to do that one task for a very select number of you know occurrences. That's why the retrofit is actually working quite well, because we're taking airframes that can fly a lot further, but never fly that distance, or very, very rarely do. We retrofit them and make some compromises with the aircraft in doing so, but we end up with a viable solution because it still flies the distance that operators are actually flying the plane. So I'd like to see in the next generation of aircraft, you know, real consideration on uh, the design points, you know, how far these things are going to go. And let's design something really, really efficient. When you retrofit an, an aircraft, does it have to go through a recertification process with the FAA or the equivalent in the UK, EU? Yeah, that's right. So, it, you know, the idea here is to, to get a supplementary type certificate for the aircraft to do the modification, like like would be the case, say, for cargo conversions or you know other substantial changes to the airframe. So we will have to go through a process with the regulators to, to get that uh, supplementary type certificate. We'll also need to have type certificates for the different elements of the powertrain. This is where it's a little bit different to turbines again. You have the electrical propulsion system, and there are conditions out there that, that govern the certification of those today. Uh, but then you've got the fuel cell power generation system, and that's new territory. So we need to develop the, the the regulatory means of compliance for that so we can type certify it. What we're doing in the UK is working very closely with the, the UK Civil Aviation Authority in our research and development programs to exchange views on how we do that and what the means of compliance need to be uh, as we go through our development process. And that's you know, that's working extremely effectively alongside, you know, how we're maturing the technologies. So we need that process to obviously complete uh, in time for us to then go through the certification process itself, demonstrate the aircraft is safe, and the engine works, uh, so we can go, go to market with it. In general, uh, what are the regulators' thoughts on hydrogen electric powertrain? 
Are they welcoming to it? Are they skeptical? What are their, what are their general thoughts? <laughs> I'm not sure I can answer the question, to be honest, because I've not asked the regulator. <laughs> but, but I, you know, I would say, you know, we're getting good support from the UK's CAA. You know, they want, the, you know, they're interested and they, they want to understand the technology and, and, you know, get to, you know, get clarity on how we make it safe, of course. And, and that's what we all want. So, uh, you know, I, I would say uh, no feedback, good or good, bad or otherwise, but uh, we've got, you know, good engagement uh, with the regulators on this. And, you know, obviously they're supportive of helping the sector to reduce its climate impact. It has to help when you have United Airlines, they, they've placed a preliminary order for 50 ZA 2000 RJ engines with an option to purchase 50 more. Is that helping that saying, okay, here's, I, think, I believe, second largest airline in the world that's basically validating your technology. Is that helping? Yeah, well, I, again, I can't, I can't, it's difficult to answer, but I, I should think so, right? Because these things send clear messages that this is what the industry wants. And uh, the industry is being asked to address its climate impact in uh, increasingly you know, more urgent ways, I would say, either through you know, biofuels, but it needs a sort of longer term plan. And that's what this technology is doing. It's giving them a pathway to, to something truly sustainable. So I think it sends the right messages. And I think it demonstrates that, you know, we've got all of the key stakeholders engaged in the development process as well, which is really important. We're not doing this in isolation and we're not missing a piece of the puzzle. We've got uh, the operator, the airframer, the infrastructure partners, and you bring all of that together, then you can make sure you're developing a solution that's going to be viable and you know should be certified. So I think that does help uh, for sure. Because United, uh, for the listeners who are not sure what it stands for, RJ stands for, for regional jets. That's the United term that they use. Have you sat down with United with your tech, uh, technology around the hydrogen electric powertrain and said, okay, this would be a really great, United says, okay, these are very, let's say, give you an example, um, Chicago O'Hare to Louisville, that's an, R, that's an RJ route, or Chicago O'Hare to Cleveland, that's another RJ route, and saying these are routes that we like to start decarbonizing. Is that how that technology is going to be rolled out? Or what does the process look like? So that process will be somewhat iterative, as you've, as you've described there. You know, let's see where the technology can be applied sensibly. Uh, again, thinking about range limitations and uh, you know, how, to, how to optimize this first generation of product. I mean, I, I'll, I'll sort of, you know, change course slightly with the question to say, we have a relationship with Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, RJ, obviously that the, the manufacturer of the plane, right? Or at least the, the owner of the plane. And that's where we're focusing a lot of effort with them on the technical side, right? How, how do we do this in, in the right way? You know, what does the solution need to look like? What are the requirements of the system? So we're very much focused on the technical aspects at this point, I would say. Uh, but absolutely, you know, we talk to the different operators and say, okay, look at your routes, where, where is it viable? You know, where should we start? And it's not just looking at what their schedules are, but what is the infrastructure impact? Again, back to infrastructure, what is the infrastructure solution that goes along with, uh, you know, those different uh, routes? You have the you have all the building blocks. You, you have the relationship Mitsubishi Heavy Industrial, the manufacturer jet. You have it with the operator. That seems like that's to give you a clear advantage to perfect and eventually scale your product. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's 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 the idea. So uh, we've got uh, you know the right partnerships, the stepping stones as well in place. So the ZA six hundred commuter, then into the turbo props with the ZA two thousand, and then it's a it's another level of power for the the regional jet of course uh supported by 
uh, you know, behind the scenes, a technology roadmap in both the power generation system and the electrical propulsion system to achieve those those products as we go together with the infrastructure. So, you know, it's uh, it's a, it's a, a sort of stepping stone approach to scaling the technology. And each stage, you learn a lot and you incorporate that in the next stage. And as we go, we are going to bank uh, significant hours of experience, operational experience. You know, by the, I, I haven't done the sums, but by the time we get to the RJ, we will have banked, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of hours of operational time in hydrogen electric aircraft. So, you know, this is gaining that experience as quickly as possible is very important in this industry. You know, that's, that's where you demonstrate the reliability of the system. You understand your commercials really, really well. And that's important as you go up into these bigger and bigger aircraft, of course. Experience builds trust. And that's really where it starts with, because if you're sitting there and you're meeting with an individual uh, Mitsubishi Heavy Industrial, okay, so you're working on this, you're retrofitting, you're modifying, you take them for a flight. Oh, wow. Okay, so you went, you just started to develop that trust. Exactly, exactly. It's all about, uh, it's all about trust, you know, and, uh, and demonstrating the maturity of the business uh, as we go. You know, this, this was a company that, we started just four and a half years ago, and you have to work hard on building the brand, which is, is of course trust, and developing the business in a way that is you know transparently respecting you know the the, the standards of the industry that is adhering to you know, all of the right uh, safety requirements and uh, quality requirements. So that's also you know important behind the scenes. And companies only want to work with you if they can see those things happening and, and they understand the journey we're on in that regard okay we're, we're scaling up very quickly but uh, you know just within the last year the, the business has matured in so many different dimensions and it comes from the experience of having to to certify these aircraft uh, for example for for just experimental flights you know we go through significant procedures and documentation with the caa to to get uh, permission to fly in the uk uh, it's one of the more rigorous environments in which you can do experimental flying because you know the, the nature of the place. From an innovator's perspective, it can be a bit frustrating because you want to go quickly, but it's absolutely healthy for the business that we're going through that. It prepares us for you know subsequent type certification down the road and has helped us to mature all of those internal processes and procedures and the organizational structure that you need to go with that. And certainly the feedback we've received from you know, the authorities and from customers is extremely positive about where we've got the business to uh, so far. You want to go that, through that today, not five years from now, 10 years from now. It's <laughs> absolutely. Like, you've got a, you've got a big surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you want to go through that now. I, I mentioned earlier, you have a 19% market share of the US air, airline market. Very well done, very impressive. You're the vice president of strategy. How are you planning to grow that market share? Oh, well, so we need to sell uh, more engines to more operators. That's how we do that. But again, it's the, it's the, it's the stepping stone approach, right? So we, we expand our market by developing bigger and bigger engines, retrofitting those as far as we can uh, in the market and uh, addressing seg segments of the market where those retrofit solutions are, are most viable. So, you know, we're pretty focused right now on where those locations are or who the operators are, what the airframes are. And as the technology becomes better and better, we can push out the, the, the market, right? You know, we can increase what we can capture. 
So, you know, that's the approach. Scale the technology, keep moving through the airframes. And, you know, the idea is once we've got a certified ZA600, that is going to go on to multiple commuter airframes. Once we have a certified ZA2000, that's going to go on to several regional turboprops. So that's how we'll push out the technology. And, you know, we'll keep doing deals with uh, the airlines that are uh, most, you know, forward thinking in terms of their decarbonization strategy. And we'll make sure the infrastructure is getting developed alongside that at the same time and addressing that challenge with big partners like you know, Shell, Octopus Energy. Uh, you know, these, these are the sort of uh, folks you need working with you to roll these things out on, on a serious scale. So that's the strategy, if you like. Keep scaling the technology, be, you know, accumulate the test time and the trust as we go, uh, and then we'll win the orders uh, in the market. So that's the approach. So when you say you're going to go into an aircraft, let's say you're going to sell it to United or Delta, will that be used for paying passengers? Or will that be used in a quote-unquote test fleet? No, 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 absolutely, absolutely. No, the the you know these will be uh, we will take customer fleets to retrofit them and return them to the customer for for commercial operations. You know that's the idea. So uh, clearly within the development process, uh, we're working with some of these customers uh, to do to you know, through the R and D cycle. That's clearly not a commercial activity. But once it's certified and we hand back the aircraft in certified configuration, it will be taken and used in, in commercial operations. So we want to put our engine onto you know, different airframes in these different classes, retrofit them and put them back into the fleet for all sorts of uses, you know, passengers, uh, but also freight uh, market is you know, another area where we can potentially use this um, type of technology on, on aircraft. So uh, again, that's another Another area that needs to be decarbonized as well, not just uh, passenger traffic. Just look at the the rise of goods being shipped. The market, just, despite the the downturn in e-commerce, now the market's only going to continue to grow. When you div- let's say you have the customer, okay, Zero Avia, we want you to retrofit it. Will that be done at your facility, or will you set up a a colo colocation inside of their maintenance facility and and do it there where the aircraft is used to? I call it going to sleep or living. Will it be done there. Yeah, so we're probably going to see a, a variety of ways in which this is done. We, we will end up retrofitting at our own facilities. We will do it with partners at, at their facilities, you know, either a, a third party that specializes in this activity or if, it, if the airline is big enough and it own, owns these type of operations, then yeah, we'll do it with, with them. Uh, so this is something that we're open to as part of uh, the commercial arrangements we come to uh, with these different customers. And, and we're exploring those options, right? Uh, as, you, as you'd imagine. The retrofit generally needs to be done in market, of course, because we are changing the range performance of the airframe. So it's best if it's done at least within uh, the continent, <laughs> let's say. We will be unlikely, it's unlikely we'll be retrofitting aircraft in Europe and then sending them back over to the US for operations. So we'll have multiple retrofit centers around the world where we'll ship our powertrains to those centers and they'll get installed uh, into the aircraft. Uh, so that's the approach. For comparing the UK, EU, and US markets, are there differentiating approaches to how hydrogen electric aircraft should and could be rolled out and then eventually commercialized? Potentially, uh, and primarily because of the slight differences in fleet uh, that you see in these different markets. So the North American market has a lot more of the commuter type of aircraft buzzing around than, than Europe does. The regional turboprops are very prevalent in, in Europe, as are, you know, whereas the RJs are quite heavily used in North America. So th- th- these differences in fleet mix will you know, drive, uh, have an impact on how quickly things get rolled out. Because you know, we're starting with gaseous hydrogen on commuter segment, 
we're going to see more infrastructure and more routes developed in the North American market first. Okay, so once you've done that, you've obviously started to establish the sort of operations and uh, that you need to support hydrogen uh, electric aircraft. Uh, so then it's a sort of easy step, generally easy step to to, to then scale that uh, infrastructure and those solutions for the larger aircraft. I think Europe will look a little bit different because it's generally going to be uh, waiting for the bigger airframes to come along, which takes us you know, more, more into liquid hydrogen in terms of scaling up uh, more quickly. Uh, but what we see, uh, that's not to say that there aren't commuter aircraft uh, use cases in Europe. Of course, we talked about regional air mobility and that sort of thing. But um, you know, what we see in Europe is, is a lot of government interest and support for developing hydrogen infrastructure, for wanting to support demonstrator projects to enable these type of aircraft to come to market. So you know, the, the conditions are good in which to, to, to kind of you know, take on that process. So I, hopefully that kind of answers your question. I think you'll see more prevalence in North America where the small aircraft are, and then it'll, it might swing back a little bit to, to Europe, but more or less both will kind of develop their, their liquid hydrogen infrastructure to support the bigger aircraft in time. Yeah, and then eventually at some point you'll be able to go from the UK to the US, from the EU to the UK to the US. It's, it all works seamlessly. And when you look at seamless operations, operations on tarmac becomes a really big issue. Today, can hydrogen be stored on the on the tarmac today, or is that going to require policy changes? It's going to require changes. Yeah, you know, you can't just uh, store hydrogen on on the airfield today. So, you know, that's we're going to need to develop um, the, the policies and standards around doing that. So, there's quite a bit of work to to go through. The nice thing with the scaling up approach is is again, you, you start with small volumes of relatively small volumes of hydrogen. Now, that gives you one problem because it generally produces hydrogen like big volumes because they get economies of scale. But if you've centralized production where there are economies of scale and you truck the hydrogen onto the airfield, you don't necessarily need to put in a lot of additional infrastructure to enable those operations. You need the truck and it needs the capabilities to drive on and refuel the aircraft and then drive off to, 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 to get more fuel. So eventually we'll need such large quantities of hydrogen that we'll need fuel farms like we see today for kerosene uh, around the airfield. And you know, these, these things are perfectly feasible in terms of volume, in terms of land area, and, and the logistical solutions will look a little bit different depending on the types of volumes you're handling. There'll be decisions on whether uh, the fuel gets piped around the airfield as a liquid or whether it gets trucked around the airfield and uh, transferred to, to the aircraft that way. So these are all the sort of you know, different solutions that will depend very much on the nature of the airfield and the amount of hydrogen it needs to move on a daily basis. But that's that's a way away. That's the other part of our, our strategy is thinking through, you know, like we are with the powertrain, how we step up in terms of power level, how we step up in terms of volume for the hydrogen infrastructure and make that work from an economic perspective uh, and from a logistical perspective. So, you know, that's the trick. But as an airport, you know, the first airports that begin operating hydrogen will use small volumes. In time, they will use larger and larger quantities. So the infrastructure solution you initially had will become obsolete. You'll need to replace it with something else. That doesn't mean that that infrastructure is written off. It goes to another airfield that needs lower volumes at the time. So it's a sort of you know, rolling out of a variety of infrastructure solutions in time that makes this work. So that's the approach uh, we're thinking through. It's a well-heeled 
approach. I have to give you a lot of credit. You're, 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 you're putting the building blocks of the strategy where you have the, the manufacturer of the aircraft, you have the operating partner of the aircraft, you're clearly understanding the fueling aspects, you're looking at all the standardizations going there. Zero Obvious clearly putting the pieces together for what a zero emissions future will look like. And, and putting that together, what does the future of zero emission aviation look like in your opinion? Well, uh, eventually, uh, it's hydrogen electric all the way. So I think, you know, we, we see hydrogen becoming the dominant fuel for this industry to achieve zero emission. And that hydrogen will be produced uh, through you know, electrolysis type of process. So it will be clean. That's, that's really important in time. Uh, there'll be a transition to make there, but there is sufficient resource to tap into to do that a renewable resource uh, and renewable power is uh, going down in cost uh, all the time uh, it's already sufficiently low in cost to produce hydrogen at an economic rate for us so that is the trajectory and and eventually kerosene fuels are going to get more expensive in our view they're obviously very expensive today but as the industry is required to use more and more uh, sustainable aviation fuels if it's going to get anywhere close to to significant quantities, you know, 40 or 50% of, of fuel use, it's going to need uh, alternatives like power to liquid. And these become super expensive. You know, hydrogen is just a component part that goes into making a an e-fuel. And I think the economics will, will drive the sector at that point to switch uh, more rapidly. So, you know, you're, you're going to see a tipping point. You know, when the technology has demonstrated it, it, it works, uh, when people see these the operational aspects have been cracked, the infrastructure problems have been cracked, our planes are flying without emissions at, at sufficiently sort of credible scales like the the, uh, the regional turboprop or regional jet, then there'll be a call for accelerating that approach for for the bigger aircraft as well. So I think that's the, that's the direction we see things going in. And a big part of that call will, will come from the consumer because the consumer will demand it. We see it on Google flights today, this is how much carbon emissions your flight has. And so let's say there's an operator running a zero avia, carbon emission zero, their bookings will go up and the consumer's gonna be a big part of driving that change. And James, I thank you for coming on SAE tomorrow today because I learned a lot about zero avia, learned a lot about zero emissions. And as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them today? Well, I'd like them to take away a sense of optimism for the industry uh, in, in actually being able to, to significantly reduce its climate impacts in the future. And, and the other thing I'd like to say is it's not all as far, uh, as far away as it may seem. Uh, the retrofitting approach that we're taking means we're going to see these aircraft taking to the sky sooner than a lot of folks think. Because I think traditionally in this industry, people think of very long aircraft development programs. And for sure, we'll see more of those in the future. But you know, in terms of hydrogen electric powertrains, we're going to get those to market faster than folks uh, generally uh, imagine. I like that. A sense of optimism. You clearly demonstrated optimism today because today is tomorrow. Tomorrow is today. And the future is zero emissions aviation. James, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week as Carbon Revolution's co-founder discusses the company's carbon fiber wheels that are much lighter than aluminum equivalents and how they are improving steering, handling, and response. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. 
The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.